Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Tony Robbins once said, Only those who have learned the power of sincere and selfless contribution experience life's deepest joy, true fulfillment. Good evening. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan, and that different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue. Always done in a politically free zone. Folks, thanks for joining us this evening. This is a caller in format. We are caller friendly. So let's get started, Jonathan. We've got kind of an interesting subject on the table tonight, don't we? We certainly do, Rick. Uh, Our question is, did Jesus die for Muslims? And our theme text is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And just a, just a quick note, I mean, with, with the things going on politically, literally today, in the last couple of days, uh, uh, this is not meant to be a political statement. This is purely a religious uh, approach, as you will see. Uh, but uh, Jonathan, as Christians, we pin all of our hopes on the belief that Jesus was crucified and died for our sins. This is the bottom line core reason for our coming to Christ, because it speaks of him doing something for us out of pure love that we in no way could do for ourselves. To us, the sacrifice of Jesus represents the ultimate gift. Now, those outside of Christianity often look at this belief with disdain and even sarcasm, for to them it is foolishness and evidence of a bloodthirsty God. One question that is probably not talked about much is about the breadth of Jesus' sacrifice. Who did it cover, and how do we know? And see, that's the thing. How do we know? In the present conditions of our world, the Muslim faith is often thought about and referenced. So what do Muslims think of Jesus? While they do believe in him, they don't see him as a redeemer, and we'll expand on that in a few minutes. Does this mean that they are not covered by his sacrifice? So a uh, pretty straightforward question and a pretty straightforward conversation coming right at you. For sure. <laughs> you didn't pick an easy one, Rick. No, not well, you know, why go the easy route? Hey, before we get started, didn't you have one uh, yeah, really cool— Yeah, something pleasant to talk about, Rick. <laughs> All right, let's do that first. All right. Two of our CQ staff members, uh, Matt and Faith, just had a baby boy whose name is Elijah. He is so precious. Congratulations to those guys. And it's, it's, that's really kind of cool because we did a program on Elijah last week. That's right. We have a part two coming up next week. 
Awesome. And we have part three coming up in 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 uh, three or four weeks, whatever it is. But you know, no, they wouldn't tell anybody the name ahead of time, right? No, they would not. Yeah, so it's just kind of an interesting thing that we have this Elijah thing going on, and uh, and now Elijah has been born. Aha! He has. <laughs> He's adorable. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, all right, so so let's get started with this particular discussion, Jonathan. And, and to get started, I just want to lay some things out that are just, I think, really important. So everyone understands where we are coming from uh, and hopefully what our motivation is uh, and, and what's important to us. So, folks, this next statement is, is really important to get Jonathan and Rick in this particular conversation. We, here at Christian Questions, firmly believe in the Bible and in Jesus as its centerpiece. We believe that Islam, and therefore Muhammad, while widely accepted in our day, are in fact not representations of God, the creator of all things and his plan, and that Islam and Muhammad actually act in opposition to God's plan. Wait a minute, Rick. Hold on. That's a pretty strong statement there. Yeah, it is. It is. And I want to, I want to, clarify that in a moment, but it's important to put that statement out there and say, look, this is what we believe from a religious standpoint. We want to be abundantly clear so that everybody understands this is where these guys are coming from. Now, look, lots of different opinions. That's great. That's fine. No problem. But this is where we come from. This is what we believe to be important. Now, having said that, we also believe that there are many good principles taught in Islam, and we see, will seek to engage our discussion today with care and respect for the closely held beliefs of others. We would ask you folks to do the same. You may not see it the way we do, and you say, well, here they are. They're going to go on a Muslim-bashing uh, tirade. No, we're not. What we're going to do is try to explain things as clearly as we can and as respectfully as we can, and we would ask that you do the same uh, along with us, whatever your opinion might be. So, are we good? We are good. And Rick, something uh, I always appreciate, uh, our focus and direction, when we quote some other faith or religion, we use their source not ours. Right, right. And and that's another thing. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because we are going to periodically quote little parts of the Quran here uh, as, as we go through this. We will not attempt to interpret the Quran. I, I no. have no interest in trying to because, it, and I can give you a real simple reason why. It's not a book that I have studied. So for me to say, oh, look, this is what it says. It must mean that. That's foolishness on my part. So I'm going to take the word of those who are representing that book as meaning what they say it means. In return, we'd like you to do the same when we talk about scriptures. Okay, so it's, it's, it's really simple, but I'm glad you brought that out as well. Um, and now, uh, so... Uh, let's see, where, where are we here? Okay, so as we quote anything about the Islamic faith, we'll tell you that we intentionally searched for its most peaceful and inclusive representations. So, are we going to talk about radical Islam? Not tonight. Not here. Not in this context. Okay? In our conversation, we will not attempt to interpret the scriptures like you, we said, but instead simply accept them as they are used. So, you know, with that, Jonathan, again, another, another side note, and I know there's a lot of side notes to start this, but this is important. Islam has, has several different factions, 
within the the Islamic community and in Islamic faith. So does okay. Christianity. You're right. So, you know, we're not going to zero in on one grouping or another grouping and say, aha, this is what Islam is all about. It would not be fair. Just like I, for instance, just like I don't want to be represented uh, in my Christian beliefs as uh, by, by the actions of the papacy in the Dark Ages. Right. Okay, that, now you can label that as Christianity, and that's Christian history. Yeah, but that's not my Christian history, okay? So that we, we've got to be careful about those kinds of things as well. So as we go through this now, let's start by talking about God. Now to understand an Islamic view of God, we went to IslamReligion.com and just are going to read to you exactly part, a small, small part, of what they said that we think captures their clear-cut viewpoint on who God is. Muslims believe in one unique, incomparable God who has no son nor partner, and that none has the right to be worshipped but him alone. He is the true God, and every other deity is false. He has the most magnificent names and sublime perfect attributes. No one shares his divinity, nor his attributes. In the Quran, God describes himself, quote, He is God, the one, God, to whom the creatures turn for their needs. He begets not, nor was he begotten, and there is none like him, End quote. No one has the right to be invoked, supplicated, prayed to, or shown any act of worship but God alone. So a Muslim view of God, and I think this would carry through with all all aspects of, of, of Islam. A Muslim view of God is very high, very lofty, very sacred, very special, very clearly different than anything else anywhere. And that, look, you know, there, there, there's, there's, there, there's goodness in that, you know. Sure. The, there's a solemnity as they look toward God, toward Allah. And, and that I absolutely appreciate, you know, that, that sense of solemnity and honor and respect. And in their description, they're saying, look, it's pretty simple. Nothing, nobody anywhere approaches unto God. And, you know, the fact that they say uh, he has no son or partner, you know, they're, they're, that's a reference to those of us who say, well, Jesus is the son of God. And, right, and, right. and so they're saying, well, no, he doesn't have a son or a partner. He doesn't share worship. And, of course, you know, the, there are scriptures that tell us about worshiping Jesus. You know, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every right, tongue sh right. shall, shall confess. So those are references probably put there to say, okay, here are the differences. And that's a respectful way to do it. It's, it's saying this is how we see it. This is the clarity. This is the solemnity. This is the beauty of how, what we see to be God. So with that in mind, with the Muslim approach to God in mind, and again, the big question is, did Jesus die for Muslims? And we've got to start and lay, lay the groundwork and, and, and scripturally work through it and see what the answer to that might be. Um, and actually, Jonathan, folks, if, if you've got a, a, a thought— you can give us a call at 866-985-4255, toll-free, 866-985-4ALL. We are live Monday evenings from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. So let's look at a scriptural view of God's approach to humanity. 
Okay, so we're going to drop in on Genesis. We've done this a million times before. We're just going to touch on the, a portion of the curse on Satan after the big fallout, if you will, in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve. There's going to be, there, there's, there's an issue here. And between your seed and her seed. Now, her seed is Jesus. Okay, now, obviously, she didn't give, or Eve didn't give birth to Jesus, but that is prophetically what's being said. And it's showing us that there is going to be a fight, if you will, a battle to the death. It says, for the serpent, it will be bruised on the head. And that, Which is a, a, a kill shot, Rick. That's right. And you will bruise him in the heel. And, and you think about that, and you, you think of the, the, the Greek god Achilles, yeah. And and the Achilles heel, that's the only way Achilles could have been killed. He got shot in the heel with an arrow. So so you know the idea is it's a very difficult harsh battle and it really is a battle between good and evil. And and Jonathan what this begins to tell us is there's always a struggle. You know, we truly cannot know good from evil without the struggle. And that's why God allowed sin. So he could allow the struggle so we as humanity could observe and take part in whatever part of that struggle and realize good from evil, godliness from uh, a satanic view of life. That's why it's there. So right at the very beginning, you have this deep struggle, this life and death struggle being, being foretold. So that's a, a, a portion of the, uh, the curse on Satan. And, and, and again, Jonathan, in this, Satan doesn't end up too well, does he? No, he doesn't. He <laughs> ends up destroyed. And that's something that I think a lot of times we, as Christians, the, the general community of Christians, I don't know if they think about that so much. Because right. sometimes right. I think a lot of Christians, the, the Christians that believe in hell, think that, I, I don't know, that Satan runs hell and it goes on forever. First of all, hell doesn't exist. And secondly, Satan doesn't go on forever himself. He'll be destroyed. In Revelation, it shows us right, that. Right, right. So he is going to meet an end for being a, a, a rebel against God. Now, let's just drop in on a portion of the curse that was put upon Adam. This is Genesis 3, 19. Uh, yeah, just, three, just verse 19 here. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So death is the certain penalty. I mean, we're starting out with all kinds of great fun, huh? <laughs> Battles to the death, the death of the human race. This is the consequence of sin. It's really, really pretty simple from a scriptural standpoint. You were taken from the ground. You're going back to the ground. You shall die. It, death is the certain penalty for sin, and thus the necessary subject of atonement. That's what we need to get. So now, Jonathan, through this program this evening, through this podcast, we are going to feature, if you will, a specific chapter of the Bible. So folks, if you are following along and you have your Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 5. Now, I love this chapter. I think this chapter, when you go through it piece by piece, tells us exactly what the plan of God is, who the plan of God is for, and how the plan of God works. And if you can get all that in one little chapter, 
I say read it a thousand times. <laughs> so we're not going to do that a thousand times tonight, but we are going to do it once throughout this, uh, this podcast. So let's start with Roman, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, so pause right there just for a second. Sure. We have been justified by faith. Now, when you look at that, he says, we have been justified. Who's he talking about? Followers of Jesus. Okay, he's not just talking about anybody who happens to pick up the book and open up and say, oh, look, I've been justified by faith because the Bible tells me so. No. He's specifically talking about followers of Jesus, not just people who like the sound of Jesus' name, not just people who like to stand up and shout and praise, but true footstep followers of Jesus who have given up their will to do the will of God through Christ instead. That's who has been justified, and to be justified means to be made right— through our faith in Jesus. So there's something really special because the last scripture we read was all about Adam dying because he was so wrong. And here this says we are justified by our faith. So that, that's an important place for us to start. Start And the last part that you just read says we exult in hope of the glory of God. So there's great hope being uh, introduced in the beginning of Romans chapter 5. Let's go verses 3 to 5 now. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. So what this is saying is because we've got this justification, because we've got this hope, we can exult exult in our tribulations. You say, well, hey, well, hang on. Who's going to want to exult in their tribulations? Hey, did you exult in your tribulations today? <laughs> I mean, weren't they great? Weren't they fun? Weren't they exciting? No, they weren't. So this is a very, very special way of looking at life because what it does is it shows us that there is something bigger and something better for those who follow Christ. And don't we often, Rick, learn the greatest lessons in life through difficulty. And the Lord gives us those tribulations to become more Christ-like, right. to be more meek and mild and rely more on him. And that, that's the point. So what we see is, as Islam, they say there's one God, and we say, yes, there is one God, but he works his plan through Jesus, his son, and he works it through him so perfectly that it is shocking how good it is. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan, here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Did Jesus Die for Muslims? Coming up, how does the Muslim faith view our Bible scriptures? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Did Jesus Die for Muslims? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 
866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Wherever you are on the planet, listen to our episodes and interact with us on the Christian Questions app. Download now in your Google or App Store by searching Christian Questions Radio. All right, so lots of ways to get in touch, and we really love it when you do that. Uh, it really does, uh, I, I tell you, it makes my day when we get messages and so forth, uh, just to hear what uh, people think and what their what their lives are about and all of that. So uh, we encourage you to do that. So, Jonathan, let's get down to it. You know, we haven't talked about the question specifically yet. We did a lot of groundwork in the first segment, laying out where we see Islam fit in, 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 in God's plan or not fit, as the case may be. But the respect that you want to have for other people's closely held beliefs. And this is not in any way a, a, a time or a place to go stomping on something or somebody just because you don't believe in it. It's a right. way to say, okay, those are, those are their beliefs. Great. That's fine. What are ours in relation to those individuals? Uh, and where, does, where do they fit in the plan of God? And, and again, our view of Islam is not going to have anything to do with radical Islam because that is such a tiny portion of the the whole religion that you know it's the one that gets all the attention and unfortunately you know there are millions and millions of people that do not uh, uh, subscribe to, to such things so let's get to our subject matter um we're going to just drop in uh, a few times uh, during this uh, podcast on a christian versus muslim debate about th- this very question or very similar question did jesus die for our sins and here is one, kind of one, one of the initial questions that is being put forth in this debate, and it's really kind of an interesting one, so let's listen. If Muslims have a hard time understanding how a loving, merciful God, it seems like a contradiction, would crucify his beloved son. They, it, it goes against, it's a contradiction to them. Why, can you answer this question, why would God, who's so big and so forgiving and loving, not just forgive us all our sins and have to kill the person he loved most in order to forgive us? All right, so that's a question that is presented to a, a, a Christian at this debate. And he's going to give kind of, an, we're going to just get to part of his kind of interesting answer uh, in a few minutes. And then we're going to come back to that question a little bit later, Jonathan. But, okay, so why couldn't God just forgive everybody? Why did he have to go through this crucifying of his son? You know, there, there's value to that question. Sure. So let, let's uh, get to it. But first, let's go back to try to understand a little bit more about the Islamic view of the Christian Bible. We, we spent a few minutes in the first segment on the Islamic view of God. This is a quote. This is from Wikipedia, the Islamic view of the Christian Bible. Go ahead. The Islamic view of the Christian Bible is based on the belief that the Quran says that parts of Bible are revelation from God but believe that some of it has become distorted or corrupted, and that a lot of text has been added, which was not part of the revelation. Okay, so pause there for a second. So they're saying, okay, parts of the Bible, parts of the Bible, from an Islamic perspective, are are, a revelation from God. Now, revelation from God is always good. And they're saying there are parts that are revelation from God, but that there are other parts that are distorted or corrupted, and that a lot of text has been added, which have nothing to do with revelation from God. So you got to say, okay, how much is a lot of text? 
So let's read a little further and see if we can figure that out. Muslims believe the Quran, which they hold to be a revelation to the Islamic prophet Muhammad, was given as a remedy and that it identifies three sets of books from the Bible as genuine divine revelation given to trusted messengers. The Torah given to Moses, the Psalms given to David, and the Gospel given to Jesus. They believe that together the Quran, these books, and the scrolls of Abraham, which they believe is currently lost, constitute Islam's scripture. Okay, so what Islam does then with the Christian Bible is they say the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. They say they're good. And then they say, what's next? Psalms. The book of Psalms is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then they say the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are good. And then they say, that's it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so all of the prophets are not good. So all of the Jewish history in the Old Testament outside of Genesis and, you know, through Deuteronomy is not good. All of the Christian letters in the New Testament are not good. So they take a very small portion of Scripture and say, that is good, and Muhammad was given the revelation of writing the Quran to correct and complete the message of God. Now, that's an opinion from a, a Muslim perspective, great. It's not our opinion, but that is a, 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 an opinion of, of legitimacy. And we're, we're going to cross paths with that opinion uh, probably a little bit more in, in the next segment in terms of interpretation and so forth. So that just gives us a sense of, from an Islamic standpoint, our Bible is riddled with mess. I mean, absolutely riddled with mess. And what they're saying is the Quran has nothing in it that is not pure revelation from God. So, as a Christian, I look at that and say, well, <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a very fair playing field for me. <laughs> <because> <laughs> and, and revelation doesn't count. <laughs> absolutely does not. It does not count. You're right. All right. So, with that in mind, let's go back again to uh, that, that Christian versus Muslim debate. You know, did Jesus die for our sins? Remember, the question was asked, um, why didn't God just forgive everybody instead of sacrificing his son, crucifying his son? Why would he do such a horrible thing if he's such a loving God? Here is the, 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 the Christian minister. This is part of his answer. I think the answer to that is very simple, and that, it's, that is that we have a, such a high view of what relationship with God is, and we have such a high view of what sin does to that relationship, that it requires, and these are God's parameters, these aren't my parameters, they're not your parameters, Peggy, it's God's parameters, it, it requires a death. It requires a, a blood that has to be shed. That sounds it seems gruesome. horrendous to me that God would do that, and the fact that God would do that is, is all the more appalling to me that he'd do it for you, and he'd do it for me. So what he's saying, and we didn't quote a lot of it because he, and it kind of repeats itself, that, that gives the essence of the answer. What he's saying is, it's appalling to me that God would do that, but those are God's parameters, so we must accept them. So that's one way to look at it. You say, yes, to crucify, to have Jesus crucified is a horrible, horrible travesty, but that's the way God wanted it, so it must be okay. Now, Jonathan... I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. 
I know very well about you on an issue like this. But when we look at the ransom of Jesus, we don't see it in, in, the, in that light, not even remotely so. No, we don't. There is so much sense and reason and profound depth in that action that if you don't get to the depth of it, of course you're going to look at it as some some kind of travesty because you don't get it. You don't see the biggest picture that, that is there to be seen. So, you know, this is a tough question for a lot of folks. Why would God, a God of love, crucify his own son? Let's take a look at that by first looking at God's justice. So we're going to go back into Genesis just for a few more verses. Genesis chapter 3, anyway, for a few more verses. Um, because they're going to give us some hints as to how all of this begins to uh, um, come together. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin from for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So you, you, you read through that and you say, okay, that's nice. God clothed them because they were using some, some leaves of some, some tree and that wasn't very good. And so because God Because they them. felt shame. Right. Right, and they never felt shame before the sin, but that's a whole different part of the story. Uh, but, but the thing you've got to realize is that if he gave them skins, that means some animal died. That's right. Okay, that means— That's the first recorded death of an animal right there in the Bible. So there is an animal sacrifice to cover humanity. That's what happened. And you say, well, of course, you had to do that because—but but did you hear the way we're describing it? There's an animal sacrifice to cover humanity. Blood was shed. So covering the nakedness of sinful man, you had to have the shedding of blood, perhaps as a symbol to show that sin brings shame. Like you said, they, they, they felt shame for the first time in their lives. Sin brings shame, which leads to death all need covering with a sacrificed life. I think in that simple act of clothing Adam and Eve, Jonathan, God gave us a profound, tiny look at what was going to unfold over time. A tiny, I think you're right. Tiny, I think you're right. Tiny little look. Okay, so let's go back. Genesis 3, now to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So now what had to happen after that sacrifice was put in place to cover sinful man, there's finally a banishing from eternal earthly life. Remember, in the garden, they had all of the ingredients to have eternal life on earth. Yes. And this is a major part of what was lost. The, the idea of having eternal life on earth was, was lost. It was there. It was offered. It was actually functional until sin entered, and then it was taken away. So you've got that at the very beginning of God's plan. So you, have, you see justice, you see the wisdom, and you see the, 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 the power of this, this sacrifice that covers um, and we're, all this unfolds into the love of God's plan. 
Let's go forward now. Uh, I don't know how many years. Sixteen hundred years or so, right? Uh, to the yeah, I think you're right. To to the flood, to the flood of Noah. This is the next beginning because you have the beginning in the Garden of Eden, and this is where they ended up. Well, the next beginning is Noah upon leaving the ark. Okay, he's leaving the ark after the flood and all of that, and and he offers sacrifices to God and receives God's commands. So so what happens there? Let's just let's just go there for a moment because this helps to pick up on what happened at the first beginning. Genesis 9, verses 3 to 7. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For you own, for your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal, I will require it and from human beings, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image God made humankind. And you, be fruitful and multiply, around on the earth and multiply in it. So, there's a lot of talk here about blood. You say, well, wow, God is really a, a gory, bloody God. It's all about blood and, you know, blood this, blood that. But here's the point. What he's saying is, in the last, uh, just about the last line of the scripture you read, it says, whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human shall that person's blood be shed. Why? Justice. For in his own image, God made humankind. That's the secret of the power and the reason for all this talk about blood. What he is saying, what God is saying to Noah is essentially what he said to Adam and Eve in that blood sacrifice to cover them. He's saying, you were created in my image. You are different than everything else. You are higher than everything else. You are unique on the earth. And therefore, you are to be treated in a very, very, very uh, uh, unique way. And the sacrifice, the necessity of life for life shows you the, 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 the pricelessness of human life. Does that, does that make sense? It really does. So it gives us a sense of the, the sanctity of human life. So blood, again, is singled out. Um, as a sacred part of life. There's a clear basis for justice in Genesis long before the Jewish law covenant was established with Moses. We welcome all comments or questions, even if you disagree with us. Give us a call. We're live at 866-985-4ALL. That's 866-985-4255. All right, let's go back to our theme chapter, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 now. Let's, uh, verses 6 through 11, go ahead. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, here's the interesting thing. It doesn't say while we were yet sinners, God killed Christ for us. It doesn't say no. that. It doesn't. You know, that question that was asked earlier in the segment was saying, well, God killed his son. No, he didn't. He required a sacrifice, and, uh, and Jesus said, here am I. Send me. 
he volunteered. He stepped up. He willingly walked in that path. And people say, well, that's gruesome. Well, okay, yeah, you say that's gruesome, but it's the preciousness and the value of life that he sacrificed himself for. And I remind you, Jonathan, of those men and women who are in uniform who protect us every single day. When one of them dies protecting us, do we say, oh, that's terrible of them? Or do we, no, of do course we not. thank them for putting their life on the line and giving it up so that we can live? So this idea of gruesomeness, you've got to put it in the right perspective. It's a gift. Now, is it a hard gift? Oh, yeah. Is it a difficult gift? Oh, yes. But it's got something of great, great value in it. So th there's a clear focus on Christian privilege in this part of Romans, um, receiving the blood of Christ, and, that, and the just price needed that could only be accomplished by a loving gift. Let's go to uh, verses 9 through 11. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So now there's a whole, an awful lot of talk about we in those verses, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, again, who is the we that's being spoken of? The followers of Jesus. Okay. Is it anybody else? No. No, it's not. And, and so you say, okay, so now there is a, um, there's a, a, an exclusiveness being shown here in these verses. And yeah, there is. And it's exclusively, it's being focused on, clearly, clearly focused on the footstep followers of Jesus. And it's talking about reconciliation here. And see, reconciliation is absolutely the key. There's much more, and reconciliation is much more than a feeling of being forgiven. When that woman asked the question earlier, you know, why couldn't God just forgive us all? Because reconciliation has to be part of forgiveness. And forgiveness is not just some kind of gesture Forgiveness from God is an action that changes things. How does that happen? It happens through God's justice. That's the way God's plan works. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Did Jesus Die for Muslims? Coming up, what is the Muslim view of Jesus? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Did Jesus Die for Muslims? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. Or you can message us on your app. The conversation continues online at ChristianQuestions.com. Contact us there with your questions or comments. Also, interact with us on our Facebook. You can tweet us at CQNet Radio. And we're now on Instagram. All right. So in this segment, Jonathan, one, one of the things we want to look at is what is the Muslim view of Jesus? And, you know, folks, 
we're going to attempt to represent a Muslim view by reading Muslim writings. Now, you know, if you don't think that they're, they're, they're accurate enough, sure, let us know. We'd, we'd love to hear from you because what we're not trying to do is pigeonhole a, a, another viewpoint. We're trying to represent it w- with respect and then say, okay, here's how we see it. And, uh, you know, we'll go from there. So back to IslamReligion.com. Um, we want to look at the Muslim view of Jesus through kind of in, in two stages. Belief in the prophets and messengers of God first, and then specifically what do Muslims believe about Jesus. Go ahead, Jonathan. Muslims believe in the prophets and messengers of God, starting with Adam, including Noah, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Jesus. Peace be upon them. But God's final message to man, a reconfirmation of the eternal message, was revealed to the prophet Muhammad. Muslims believe that Muhammad is the last prophet sent by God. So what they're saying is that they, there's a handful of biblical prophets that they are, are identifying. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Jesus. Uh, I'm not sure if David would be involved, because it says including. So there may be a few others. I don't want to say that this is the final list, because I truly don't know. But what it's saying is, but the final prophet was Muhammad. And Muhammad had the final word on the revelation of God. So, with that in mind, let's go back to that Christian versus Muslim debate, and let's get a Muslim answer, uh, or begin to develop a Muslim answer uh, to that question of uh, Jesus dying and, and, and God's role and, and, and so forth. You see, Peggy, actually this idea was originated by Paul. I mean, he said the wages of sin is death. He made the, the cross the center of his theology. And that's why he put so much on it. That's why he said if Christ is not raised, then uh, you're still in your sins. But it makes no sense because if God wants, he can forgive us. Just like Jesus taught about the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The son comes back to his father. The father welcomes him with open arms and has a celebration. Nobody has to die for somebody to be forgiven. Because if somebody dies, then there is no forgiveness. You know, that means I just took my full price. I'm a cruel judge. I just exact the full punishment. Somebody goes and dies, and then I'm happy. But if God was loving and kind, he should be loving and kind to his son as well and save his son by some other means. So, you know, Jonathan, it's kind of interesting because he's saying, you know, the Apostle Paul, which is not included in the prophets according to Islam, okay? Right, right. Uh, They're saying he's the one who said the wages of sin is death, and, and they are absolutely right. He did. Okay, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. However, the wages of sin is death, not according to Paul, but according to God in Genesis. In the day you eat of the true tree I told you not to eat of, you will die. What does that translate into? The wages of sin is death. So, you know, the idea of saying, taking that statement and saying, well, you know, that was attributed to the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Because he's quoting it from Genesis. So it's, it's, you've got to be able to look at the scriptures as an inclusive unit that complement one another. And, and look, this is where we diverge dramatically from a Muslim view of the Bible. So we've got that, uh, that, that beginning. We're going to go back to that, um, that, uh, that particular speaker uh, in another a few minutes. Um, let's go back again to Islam. This is a different website now. This was Islam-guide.com slash Jesus. And this is what do Muslims believe about Jesus? Uh, go ahead, Muslim, Jonathan. Muslims respect and revere Jesus. Peace be upon him. They consider him one of the greatest of God's messengers to mankind. 
The Quran confirms his virgin birth. Jesus was born miraculously by the command of God, which had brought Adam into being without a father. During his prophetic mission, Jesus performed many miracles. Muslims believe that Jesus was not crucified. It was the plan of Jesus' enemies to crucify him, but God saved him and raised him up to him. And the likeness of Jesus was put over another man. Jesus' enemies took this man and crucified him, thinking that he was Jesus. Okay, so what you have here is a description of Jesus as a great prophet, but nothing more than that. And you have this description that says, and he absolutely was not crucified. That was all a, a, a setup, if you will. Somebody took his place and, and so forth. Now, obviously, as Christians, we don't believe that. And, as right. a matter of fact, Jonathan, on the, on the chat board, there's, there's, uh, there, there's somebody who's very excited about this uh, in a disagreeable way. Uh, okay. <laughs> and he says, I want to debate with this dude. Uh, the Bible is a lie. And uh, no disrespect, but the Bible has changed over time. And, you know, he's right. A lot of scripture has changed over time. I, I absolutely agree, and that's why we have to study it to try to find what it means. And the way you find out what the Bible really means through all of the time and the changes and the translations and all of those things is to find the harmony. There's a harmony from beginning to end that if you're willing to look, you can find. So, um, Jonathan, what's our number? It's 866 866- Nine eight five forty two fifty five. Okay, so if you want to uh, call in, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, so let's go back to this Christian versus Muslim debate. Did Jesus die for our sins? And we're going to go back to the Muslim giving the answer, and he said that you know you know Paul made the cross the centerpiece of his teaching, and now he's going to go a little bit further with his explanation of how that happened, and we're going to discuss what he the, the point that the individual uh, makes here. And Jay said the son was willing, but notice that's the representation in the last of the four Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke showed that the son was, although willing, he was submitting, but not offering himself. In the Gospel according to John, the story is revised so that Jesus actually offers himself, because that just looks better. But even if the son offers himself, it doesn't really solve the problem, because if the son loves the people so much that he wants to die for them, doesn't the father love the people more than the son loves? Okay, so he says a mouthful there, but the thing that he says, Jonathan, that, that, that gets me really, really thinking, um, and, and yeah, I don't know that it raises my blood pressure, but it could, <laughs> <laughs> is that the story was changed. In the book of John, the story was changed to make it uh, look like uh, Jesus offered himself, but he really didn't. You know, he was willing, but he says in the, in the first three Gospels, he didn't offer himself. Now look— I realize that there's, a, there's, there's, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of translations of the Bible. I realize that there are a lot of manuscripts. I understand all of that. But when you make a statement that says, well, the first three Gospels don't show Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice, and, and you're trying to represent the Scriptures, you're, you're doing everybody an enormous disservice. Listen carefully. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23, okay? Now, before you read this, Jonathan, this is also uh, recorded in Mark 8, 31 to 33, and Luke 9, 22. This is Jesus' first revealing of his death to his followers. Uh, he's going to put the coming events into the hands of the Pharisees and the chief priests. That's how he's going to describe what's going to happen. Also, this first revealing was after the, the apostle Peter said that 
Jesus was the Messiah. And it's as if to say, okay, you got that. This is the cost of Messiahship. This is Jesus. This is how it describes what Jesus said about himself, offering himself to die in this crucified manner. Again, read it, read it for us, uh, Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, I don't know, Jonathan, that sure sounds like he's offering himself to me. Amen. See, he, he certainly is. Now, it's interesting the way he phrases it, though. I mean, you, you look at it and say, well, he says, he's talking about the Son of Man. He's not saying, well, this is what, oh, no, he's saying him, he, he himself. I'm sorry, I, I got that wrong. He gives this personal description of what's going to happen to him, and Peter jumps up and says, oh, no, 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 that should not happen. So that shows you that it's sunk in as a personal event that was coming down the road in the life of Jesus. Yes. To be killed and raised up on the third day. To be killed and raised up on the third day. It's very, it, it's, it, you can't mistake that. It's, it's spoken in Matthew, it's spoken in Mark, and it's spoken in Luke. In Luke, Peter confronts that, and Jesus says, look, this is, Jesus' answer is, this is what I have to do. This is offering himself. This was his mission. But he doesn't just say that once. Now we go to the second revealing of Jesus' crucifixion to his followers. And in this second revealing, he's going to be focusing on being put into the hands of men. See, now in the first one, it was being put into the hands of the Pharisees and the chief priests. Now he's saying in this next one, it'd be the hands of men. And perhaps he's, he's, he's focusing now on the Gentiles. This second revealing was after Jesus released the boy from demon possession. And that was a particular possession, if you remember, that was much more difficult than others. And perhaps this was, again, a reminder of the cost of being the chosen one. And Jonathan, this is why Jesus reveals it over and over. Because there's a great cost because sin has great cost to satisfy justice. But once justice is satisfied, then you've got to see what comes, and we'll get to that later. But so let's go to—this is from Mark 9, 30-32, but it's also recorded in Matthew 17, 22-23, and in Luke 9, 43-45. Go ahead. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So this was, in a way, mysterious. It was scary, but they were afraid to ask him. But again, it's utterly specific. And he said, I have to, the Son of Man has to be delivered into the, into the hands of men. It has to happen. This is to fulfill the ransom price necessary. This is to prove the worthiness of the buying back of the life of Adam. Adam's life was, was, was forfeit because of sin. One man dies, and another man must die to bring him back. And you say, that's awful. 
Well, sure, if you stop right there. But that's not the character of God. And what you need to realize, especially if you're looking at this with skepticism, is you need to stay with us for the second hour, because in that second hour, what you're going to see is the value that comes from that sacrifice. And the value, Jonathan, is so immense, it can hardly be counted or even described. So let's go now to the third revealing. So, so not only does Jesus say that, no, I'm going to be, I'm going to be killed, okay? Because remember, in, in, in the debate, the, the, the Muslim gentleman was saying, well, you know, he, he didn't offer himself in the first three Gospels. They made it look good in the book of John. And I'm saying, you know what? And, and please, I want to say this the right way, but I realize that your book is the Quran. Our book is the Bible. Don't mess with our book. Because if you're going to take it out of context like that, you're not doing anybody any service or any help. So this third revealing, this is even more detailed, okay? It's more dramatic. And it was after the most dramatic of all of the miracles that Jesus would perform. And that was the raising of Lazarus. Now here's a guy who was dead for four days. And Jesus called him forth from the tomb. That is a miracle for the ages when you think about that. For sure. So now this is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. It's also written in Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19, and it's also written in Mark 10, verses 32 to 34. Go ahead, let's go to with the Luke 30, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 18, 31 to 34. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. So now, just hold on there for one second, because now Jesus is referring back to the prophets, all the things written about the Son of Man. And there are very graphic descriptions in the book, in the prophets, about the crucifixion, including in Psalms. That's right. Psalm 22 is about the crucifixion. You're right. So he's referring back to those things saying, these things are all going to be coming true about the Son of Man. This is Jesus verifying the whole of the Old Testament. Go ahead. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spat upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So now... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. You cut me off. I, I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So again, this was scary in terms of what was being written, and they didn't understand it because now Jesus is getting really, really specific. And he says he's going to be mocked and mistreated and spit upon and whipped and then killed. So he gives this very graphic uh, um, portrayal of what's going to happen. And again, you can say, well, look what God did to Jesus. No, God knew that would happen because man was evil. And see, that's why Jesus came, because the outgrowth of sin, of, of, of sinning, is two things, Jonathan. First of all, it's the sentence of death. Yes. But until you experience full death, you experience a dying experience of sin as you go through your life toward death. So that experience is being showcased 
by God to say, look how far off from my ways you have gone. You who were created in my image, look at what has happened to you. God didn't set Jesus up to be tormented and tortured. He allowed the hearts of men to follow their own way. God, look, you know, I mean, think about it. God didn't set up Roman crucifixion. The no, Romans, when they figured that out, were not, were, had, not, had nothing to do with God whatsoever. So here's the thing, Jonathan. If you paid attention, uh, you could see all of the main elements through the three revealing statements uh, uh, of the high level of cost that would be, and the high level of privilege that would be, surrounding the events of the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, the point is Jesus' crucifixion was absolutely the centerpiece it was the centerpiece of his whole reason for living. In the second hour, we're going to discuss that centerpiece in a very specific and clear way by using the fifth chapter of Romans, and it's going to show us who Jesus died for. And the question still remains, did Jesus die for Muslims? We'll be back in just a moment, but till then, for Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, the death of Jesus, why? Think about it. And folks, remember, we love hearing from our listeners. Let us know what you think about today's topic. Suggest future topics for us. And don't forget to start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Danny McBride once said, The one thing about being a parent is the ability to be selfless, to give up the things you want and need for the benefit of someone else. Good evening. Welcome back. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And Jonathan, we've got one of those subjects on the table tonight. What is it? We do, Rick. Our question is, did Jesus die for Muslims? And our theme text is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So what we're trying to do tonight is we're trying to say, okay, Jesus died as a ransom. We believe that. All Christians believe that. But who is included in that ransom price? That's the big question. And are Muslims included? Because Muslims, in a lot of ways, while we are being very—hopefully we're coming across. You know, I mean, I I'm, believe we're being very respectful, but, and if we're not coming across that way, somebody needs to tell us of, of the Muslim faith. We don't agree with it. 
Okay, what we see in the Muslim faith is a lot of contradiction according to what we believe is the founding faith of, of Judaism and then Christianity. And in the first hour, Jonathan, we, we looked at, at, at the Muslim perspective of God, and it's very high and very solemn and, frankly, very beautiful. Uh, we looked at the, the Muslim perspective of the Bible, and it's very uh, sliced and diced, if you will. You got the first five books of the Bible, you got Psalms, you got the Gospels, and pretty much that's it, okay? And the rest, they say, is, is all erroneous. Uh, the, Bible, the, the Muslim view of Jesus is that he was a great prophet, and they treat him with great respect, but that's it. And that takes away the incredible value that we believe Jesus came to give. So when we look at those things, we say, okay, that's, that's a viewpoint, but in our mind, it's an incredibly limited way to see what the scriptures have to offer. God is a God of justice, and that's why blood ends up being part of this thing. You say, you know, it sounds so gross. Yeah, it does, especially in our in our. Uh, uh, our age of, of, especially you, Jonathan, everything's got to be perfect and clean. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know? I don't want to see the slaughterhouse, Yeah, Rick. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> That neither, would bother me. <laughs> neither do I. But here's the fact. In the scriptures in the Old Testament, it says the life is in the blood. And we understand that God is making a very specific point for the sake of eternity. And he's saying, understand humanity. You were created in my image. So for you to be bought back from the sin that was committed, it requires a lot. But once you're bought back, let me show you what I have to give you. That's the part that nobody seems to think about, nobody seems to focus on, and that's what we're going to start to develop in this hour, Jonathan. So um, let's go back to uh, a... um, Another sound, another soundbite from that debate: Did Jesus die, uh, die for the sins of the world? Actually, this was—I think this is a different. I confuse myself with the way I take my own notes. I mean, it's pretty, pretty sad when you think about that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, again, this is that that same kind of thought of you know what's wrong with just forgiving already? So let, let's listen. A question for Dr. Craig, please. Uh, Dr. Craig, um, if Jesus died for our sins. Why and what incentive or reason is there for humanity to be good and to do good if we know at the end of the day, regardless of what we do, we are saved? Yeah, I really appreciate this question because I don't want to give the impression that I'm a universalist, that I think that just because Christ died for the sins of all people, that therefore all people are automatically saved. That's not the Christian view. Christians believe in the reality of hell and uh, of judgment. And uh, we believe that a person can separate himself from God's love forever by rejecting the love and the grace of God. All right, so Jonathan, as we had mentioned earlier in the program, there's lots of views of Christianity and there's lots of views of Islam. And all Christians do not believe in hell. No. Uh, And we are amongst those that do not. And the reason we don't is because the scriptures don't teach it. And you you can point to a scripture or two and say, but what about this? Well, there's answers. There's clear scriptural answers within the context and within other scriptures. We've done several series on that. We did a three-part series, I think, a year ago, a year and a half ago on on hell. If you are interested in seeing why it is that we are so convinced that there is no hell taught in Bible scripture. 
But they're saying, here's the other side of it. Remember, the first question was, well, you know, it's pretty gruesome that God would require his, you know, kill his son, which he didn't, but, you know, to, to save us. This is saying, well, if everybody's saved, then what's the use of living? Because, you know, you can do anything you want and everything's going to be fine. Both of those views, Jonathan, are extreme and completely misreality. And that's the point of the human experience, is to find the reality of what happened, how God's plan reconciled it. Now, see, forgiveness is not just saying, oh, it's okay, I forgive you. With God, forgiveness is being reconciled. And we're going to get into that later on, too. So this is, to me, this is, now we're getting to the exciting part. Be- All right. Because there's so much to learn about who is part of this ransom price that Jesus paid. Did Jesus die for Muslims? Let's find out. Let's go back to our chapter, um, Romans chapter 5. We're up to verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So this is, this is a really exciting development in the chapter, fifth chapter of Romans, because now it's talking about one man's sin. And now, right. And now you have death entering through that one man's sin. And so he says, now, so sin therefore spread to everybody. Right. For, and then he says something interesting. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was, is not imputed where there is no law. And you say, well, what the heck does that mean? Well, the law identified right. sin and what it, what it was and how bad it was. So what it's saying is God's viewpoint of sin never changed, even before the law was written. He always recognized it as contrary to his will. The law was put in place to say, this is how and why it's contrary to my will. That gave us a, a, a touchstone to work through. And then it says, but nevertheless, even before the law, death reigned through, from Adam until Moses, because that's what happened because of the sin of Adam. So the main point here that we want to take from this particular part of the text is simple. Adam was entirely responsible for inherited human sin. And you say, well, that's a lot of pressure to put on one guy. Yep. (laughs) It is. Sure is. Why would we put it there? Because God did. Why did God put it there? Because Adam was created in his image. He had the capacity to be more godlike in his actions. So, Death reigned even before the law was given. Therefore, the death penalty was clearly upon all of humanity. So now let's take a a New Testament look uh, to help us see the process that God's plan of salvation um, had had put in place uh, in relation to the law. Because the law wasn't—here's the thing, Jonathan. God put the law in place, but the law wasn't the answer. No, it wasn't, because no one could keep it perfectly. So, But the law was part of the answer because it took a step towards the answer. Yes. Galatians three nineteen to 22. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed, 
would come to whom the promise had been made. Okay, so it's saying it, it's saying the law was added, just like in Romans, because you had to identify what sin was, and it was added by the agency of a mediator. Now that's an interesting phrase, this idea of a mediator. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. So then you say, okay, well, wait a minute. If the law would have been, been given that could have imparted life, then righteousness would have been based on the law. Then you can ask the question, then why did God give the law if it couldn't bring life? Because the depth of sin is so deep and degrading, it takes several steps to first recognize and then identify and then to obliterate it. And the law was the first in several steps to be able to put sin away forever because that's God's plan. That is God's written plan. Uh, verse 22. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, so given to those who believe. Aha, you know, we were just talking about everybody's captured, uh, captivated under sin, uh, and, and now you're saying that the, that, uh, the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. So it's like it's like pulling these individuals out from everybody else. Is that, is that what right? It, that's what it sounds like, and that's what it's doing. And you say, well, why would God do that? If God's a God of equality and all of that, why would He do that? Patience, my friend, patience, because you have to see the steps in the development of God's plan. So let let's touch on the idea of what a mediator actually does. First Timothy two five and six. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Okay, so there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He gave himself a ransom for just the few people who followed him. No, it says, Rick, all, for all. All right, now, we can look at that one scripture and say, yeah, that sounds nice, but is it really true? We're going to prove that it's really true as we go through the rest of this program. Okay, take our word for it now because that's what's written there, and we'll go back to the scriptures to give you further proof on that. But here's the thing, Jonathan. Jesus earned the right to mediate because he gave his life for Adam's. That's what gave him the right to mediate. So without giving that life up, once he was raised, he now has a right to stand between God and Adam to make things work, to make things go the direction that they need uh, to go. Jonathan, I believe that we have a call. I think we have Julius on the line from Connecticut. Uh, hang on. Good evening, Julius, and welcome to Christian Questions. Uh, good evening, uh, Rick and Jonathan. Nice to have you. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, we had good winter, huh? Not bad so far. Not too bad so far. We'll take it. Yes, uh, you know, as long as I've started the Bible, uh, the question, uh, you know, uh, to me is pretty academic. That uh, uh, I, I like the what the scripture you're referring to right now. It came to mind. Uh, I know it's one of Jonathan's favorite scriptures, one Timothy two, right, chapter two, verses four to six. 
You know, if you go back, back backtrack a little bit on that, uh, I think you referred to verses 5 and 6. I think one of the texts there before that says, God is anxious that uh, all men come to a knowledge of the truth. It's a conditional thing. Right. It, it, it's, it's, life is conditional. Uh, it, there has to be obedience, there has to be believing, like uh, even John 3.16 3.16, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have uh, everlasting life. Uh, so it's the opportunity is there for everyone. You know, uh, uh, one more reference, uh, Rick. Uh, Matthew 11 uh, refers to the wicked people of the past, like Sodom and Gomorrah. They will have the opportunity to life. Yes. So uh, it, it's pretty inclusive, pretty inclusive. And I'm, I thank God for that, that, that all will have the opportunity. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you, Julius. We appreciate your call. Take care. So, and, and you know, Julius brought up a, a good point, Jonathan, in that, uh, you know, the inclusiveness is such an important thing. And he mentioned 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses uh, 3 and 4. And actually, we're going to get to those verses very specifically a little bit later on, so stay with us for that. Thanks, Julius, uh, for bringing that to our attention. But, but Jonathan, back to this, this thing about the mediator. The mediator relationship is describing the role of Jesus with the whole world before God. And, Rick, this is non-Christian. So when you say that, what do you mean? Well, a mediator is a go-between, but we're going to find out there's another word that we're going to be talking about, an advocate, which is different than a mediator. And the advocate is something really special. So what you're saying is the followers of Jesus have a different relationship with God than those who don't follow Jesus. That's right, exactly. Okay. But in, essentially, though, Jonathan, no matter which category you're in, you have some kind of opportunity to have a relationship with God. Yes, you do. And it all comes through Jesus. It's pretty simple. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing, actually. Pretty amazing. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the mediator here. We just got a couple minutes left in this segment. The mediator of the law for Israel was Moses. The mediator of grace for the world is Jesus. Romans 3, 19 to 21. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. All the world may become accountable to God. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that the world is going to come before God and he's going to say, go burn? Is that what being accountable is? Or is there no. some, something more than that? <laughs> I'll just say no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll take that for now. We'll come back to it later. Good. Let's finish right. the verse. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So, because the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So, the law doesn't get you there but it helps to identify where you have to go. What gets us there is the sacrifice of Jesus, as we're going to see as we go further through the scriptures. Now, by the way, what was the promise given to those that believe? Because it's talking about this, the promise given to those who, who believe. Well, it's a very famous promise, and it's a, it's, a, it's a promise that was given to Abraham, to the promised seed Isaac, and then to Jacob. What is that promise? Genesis 22, 17 and 18. That in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed 
as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. All right, Jonathan, you got a little fuzzy there for a while during that reading, uh, but it sounds like you made it through it. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so what we have is as we look at this, we've got a sense of the, the, the strength of the, of the power and, and promise of God given to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by this particular seed. And we know who that seed is because it's identified in Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's descendants. Now, in Galatians 3.16, it said that Christ is the seed. So we have that clarity, and then it says, also, for those of you who are followers of Christ, you're part of that. So now we're starting to develop the idea that there are two general classes of people in this world— all of them are going to have part in blessing. Some will be doing the blessing, and some will be uh, receiving the blessing. Well, who's who and how's how? <laughs> <laughs> this is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Did Jesus Die for Muslims? Coming up. So who actually does get the benefit of Jesus' ransom applied to them? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Did Jesus Die for Muslims? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Christian Questions, a voice of reason in a world that's lost its way. Keep in touch at ChristianQuestions.com. And folks, tonight what we're trying to do is be a voice of scriptural reason. Because what we want to understand is that God's plan is written in the scriptures of the Holy Bible. It is written from beginning to end in those scriptures. And when you look at the harmony throughout the book from Genesis through Revelation, you can trace an incredible pathway that God laid out for us, and Jesus is the, is the centerpiece of the whole thing, so that the world can have an opportunity at life. And that's really what we're talking about. Now, having said that, we need to talk about judgment. Uh, you know, we, we, we talked about a verse in the last segment that said that, you know, everybody is going to be accountable to God. That's right. So that means there's some kind of judgment. So let, let's take a, a quick snapshot look at a Muslim perspective on judgment, and let's try to then explain what we think the scriptural uh, Christian perspective on judgment is. And, and, and let me just say, Jonathan, before we get to the Muslim perspective, that there's a lot of different Christian perspectives on judgment. Okay. That's for sure. A lot of different ones. We're going to obviously tell you what we believe is, is, is the scriptural one. But anyway, Islam on judgment. This is again from Islam-guide.com. Like Christians, Muslims believe that the present life is only a trial preparation for the next realm of existence. This life is a test for each individual 
for the life after death. Not really. It says like Christians, like some Christians, because there are a lot of us who don't see this life as the ultimate test for the masses of the people, and, and we'll develop that as we go. A day will come when the whole universe will be destroyed. Now, this is the Muslim point of view that you're reading. Go ahead. Right. And the dead will be resurrected for judgment by God. This day will be the beginning of a life that will never end. This day is the day of judgment. On that day, all people will be rewarded by God according to their beliefs and deeds. Okay, so what they're saying is, uh, their, their explanation seems to be saying the universe will be destroyed, and this day of judgment is where everybody appears before God, and they will be rewarded according to their previous deeds. Let, let's continue. And, and their beliefs. That's and their another... be beliefs and deeds, right, good. Right. Those who die while believing that there is no true God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger or prophet of God, and our Muslim, will be rewarded on that day and will be admitted to paradise forever. But those who die while not believing that there is no true God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger or prophet of God or are not Muslim, will lose paradise forever and will be sent to hellfire as God has said. So the Muslim perspective of the Day of Judgment is, if I can try to sum it up, uh, respectfully sum it up, is that everyone will appear before God if you hold the views, the deeds, and the beliefs of Islam, you are saved. If you do not hold the beliefs and the deeds of Islam, you are doomed to eternal fire and torment. That, that's what it seems to me to be saying. Yes. Yes. Now, to be fair, there are many Christians that say something very similar, that if you hold the beliefs of Christians, you will be saved, and if you don't, you will burn forever. So there's a, a dramatic similarity between the—and I don't know if all Muslims believe that. I'm assuming that that's the vast majority—between uh, them and, and many, many Christians. But there is another way to look at it, uh, and we believe the other way to look at it is the scriptural way. Not the traditional way, but the scriptural way to look at it. Let's go to one more a soundbite, Jonathan, from uh, Did Jesus Die for the Sins of the World? Um, and uh, th remember, the, the, the woman asked the question, um, and, and he was saying, well, you know, I want to make sure I, to, I don't come across as a universalist. So we're, we're going to pick up with that uh, particular thought. As we listen to each other, we realize how similar things we are saying. In, in the end, both Muslims and Christians will do good deeds anyhow. Muslims because they think they're obligated. Christians because they think they have to do that out of love. In fact, in the Islamic view also, Muslims should be doing deeds out of the love for God. So we are, in fact, quite similar there. But where we are different is on the understanding of how that love is extended. If Jesus, by dying for us, has thrown us that life uh, saver, then it is up to us to grab onto it. Now, notice that Dr. Craig is not saying that by Jesus dying, everyone is saved. In fact, he denies that. Whereas, if God really wanted to extend his mercy to everyone, he should automatically have saved everyone. So now um, he's, he's referring to the comment that the, the previous Christian speaker said that, hey, look, I'm not a universalist. And he's saying, see, you know, if God was loving, everybody would be saved. Well, there's something slightly in between the two. Because what we believe is the scriptures teach us that everybody has an opportunity for eternal life. They're not guaranteed eternal life, but they're going to have an opportunity for eternal life. So they're not saved without the idea of having to work once you get 
get that, that honor given to you. Okay, so it's not a free ride. It's not a it's not winning a lottery ticket that says, okay, you know, free everything for the rest of your life. No, this is learning how to live righteously. Now, why do we say this? You know, so now we're getting to the crux of the matter. Who and how in terms of saving? Romans chapter five. I love this chapter. Uh, Romans five clearly shows us everybody has opportunity for life. Every human being according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Muslims included, have an opportunity for life, but especially a few. And you say, well, why would you say that? And we'll get to that. Romans 5, uh, 15 to 17, and I'm going to interrupt you a lot okay. on this one. But the free gift is not like the transgression, but if by the transgression of the one, the many died. Okay, the transgression of the one, the many died. Now, how many? It's talking about the many died. It must mean all of humanity because in the previous context, it said that death reigned over all. That's right. So you can't take this and say, oh, he's only talking about many. No, go back to the previous verses and you see death reigned over all. That's the many. In other words, the multitudes. It's, it's, it's an epidemic is, is kind of what, what's being, being shown here. So go ahead. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So the same number who died as a result of sin get the gift of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The same number. So everybody, no matter who they are, is in line for that incredible opportunity. And now you think, well, wait a minute. So I'm trying to be good, and that person's trying to be bad, and they're going to get the same opportunity? Uh, perhaps. The question is, what are they going to do with it? Or what are you going to do with it? I mean, see, it comes down to personal responsibility. It comes down to personal accountability. You can't look at somebody else and say, well, I didn't, shouldn't have to work so hard. You better be, be thinking about yourself because eternity is a long time, and you've got to prove yourself to be able to be righteous. Go ahead. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Okay, all right. Now, th there was a lot of, you, there was, you said a mouthful, okay. Um, it says that, uh, let me just find it. Um, judgment arose. God's judgment arose. So here's the interesting thing. Everybody looks, Jonathan, and Muslims include, they look at the judgment of God as being future, okay? Mm. But there's a lot of the judgment of God in the world today that put us into the position that we're in. Okay? That's right. And it says, the judgment arose from one transgression. So the world is under a state of judgment, and that state says you now live under the auspices of sin and death and the rule of Satan. And God is saying, and I'm going to let you live like that, because now you're going to see what it looks like to live without me present there in the garden with you every day, where we can actually fellowship together freely. So he's saying, I'm letting you go. It's like letting that rebellious teenager go do their thing and let them fall flat on their face. That's what God is, has done with the human race for 6,000 years. Go Again, ahead. who did death reign over? 
everybody. See, nobody was excluded from this. And this is the beauty of Romans chapter 5, is it helps us to see this uh, just just blossom in terms of explaining how the, uh, the, the plan of God actually does work. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Aha. So here, we've been talking about everybody, 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 everybody. But here it suddenly changes. It says, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. You were talking about judgment earlier. Yes. Well, followers of Jesus, are they being judged now? See, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important um, aspect of this whole thing, because the followers of Jesus do have to prove themselves faithful now. They don't get a chance later. They are like Jesus. Jesus had to prove himself faithful now or else. For the followers of Jesus, it's you give up your will, you follow in the footsteps of Christ, and your judgment is here and now in this life. And, and you say, and say so wait, so everybody else's judgment is in, the, is in the next life? And the answer is yes, that's correct. Well, how could you say that? Because the scriptures tell us. Well, how do you know that? Let's go to the next scripture. Okay, because this next scripture helps us to begin to unfold this, this complexity of how all men are saved through Jesus. And again, Muslims included. 1 Timothy 4.10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. That's an odd way to say something. He's the Savior of all men. I mean, you'd think you'd end it right there. But it says, especially of those that believe. And so you think, well, why, why would there be an especially in here? It's showing two different classes here, Rick. The followers of Jesus are the ones that Jesus was talking to on his way to his crucifixion. When he's uh, talking to them that night and he said, you know, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would, would have told you. You know, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to return, and I'm going to bring you so where I am, there you will be. Jesus never says that to anybody but his followers. That's right. So when it says that, that we are saved by the plan of God, especially those who believe, what it's saying is they have a special calling, but they also have a special difficult responsibility to that calling here and now that the rest of the world does not have. So what I'm saying to you, Jonathan, is you and I, having believing that we have been called by Jesus to follow in his footsteps, have a different level of responsibility to the Word of God and to living God's ways than our Muslim friends do. Yes, you're right. And we believe the reward will be different if we are faithful to that which we are called. So there are two different classes of people, and both of them experience positive effects from the ransom. Some under a mediator, like we talked about the last segment, and the others under what you started to talk about last segment was the advocate concept. That's right. Um, um, so so let's, let's go to that, just to kind of get a sense of what that might mean. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So, so there, there's a couple of things here. First of all, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Christ the righteous. An advocate doesn't go between. He sits with you. He represents you. Whereas a mediator says, there's two parties at odds. Let me bring them together. That's the first thing. Go ahead, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Christian Questions Live. Call us now at 866-985-4255 or ask your questions and leave your comments at christianquestions.com. All right, so the, the, the thought of an advocate is totally different than the thought of a mediator. Jesus is spoken of as being both. How can he be both? Because the advocate applies to the footstep followers of Jesus and the mediator applies to the everybody else. So he can be both because he needs to do different things for different people. How did he get to a point of doing all that? He gave his life as a ransom. He shed his blood. Is it, does it sound gross? Sure. Was it necessary? Absolutely. Because God created man in his image, and being created in the image of God is too high a creation to just say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. There's no reconciliation there. There's no true forgiveness. Justice must be met because eternity is at stake. So the advocate, Jonathan, is a powerful, powerful picture of the relationship that Jesus has for us, standing with us, uh, you know, sort of kind of egging us on and and helping us to, to be more than overcomers. Pleading on our behalf. Yes. Wow, what a privilege. It is. It's an incredible privilege, and that's why we work so hard at studying what the Scriptures say and trying to follow what the Scriptures mean and trying to put the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation all together so we can see the plan of God unfold one step at a time. It's, it's, it's a glorious thing. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. But for those who disbelieve, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to the doom they were also appointed. Well, now that sounds tough. To the doom that they were also appointed. Okay, so unbelievers here are separated out as disobedient, and they're, they're spoken of in a prophesied position, that there's something appointed for them. There's a doom. There's, and, and that doom, Jonathan, is the failure it is the failure of the sinful ways of this world. That's what happens. The doom of it is no matter what this world tries, it's going to fall flat. It's going to fail. That's part of the doom, and the time of trouble is part of the doom, and Armageddon is part of the doom. Those are all parts of that. So the unbelievers are separated into that class, and now it talks about the believers. And listen, and this is First Peter 2, 7 through 10 now, Listen to how the believers are described here. This is really, truly amazing. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. So it's, it's, it's basically saying the unbelievers have this doom, and then the believers, it says all these different titles. I mean, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, the people of God. I mean, all these titles, what do they, what do they, what do they mean? What they are are job descriptions. See, because, again, because Jesus 
earned the right to mediate and to advocate by fulfilling God's justice, by giving his life in a very, very uh, humble and hard way, he now is able to take every human being in the world and give them an opportunity at life. But those who follow him are going to be working with him in the rehabilitation of the rest of them. So, Jonathan, these titles, these few titles that we read here, are just uh, short descriptions of some of the things that they're called upon to do. And very quickly, you said there are some other titles. Yes, uh, Sons of God, the Bride of Christ, the Little Flock, the More Than Overcomers, the Body of Christ, the Church, the 144,000, the Elect, Several titles given throughout all the scriptures. And they're not titles given for the sake of saying, I hereby proclaim you thus and so. It's I hereby explain to you what, is, what you are responsible for. When it talks about being a royal priesthood, a priesthood serves. When it talks about being a holy nation, it's to be an example. A people for God's own possession. It's to be in a position to be able to extend God's will and God's word and God's way out to others. So these titles show that there is work to be done by the faithful followers of Christ later. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Did Jesus Die for Muslims? Coming up, so did Jesus really die for Muslims? (laughs) Didn't we just talk about that? You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Did Jesus Die for Muslims? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866 866- 985 for all, or you can message us on your app. Out from the dark ages, errors from the past, and into the light of today, the original good news. Join us 24-7 at ChristianQuestions.com. So, Jonathan, uh, again, we, we started out the program with this very basic questions. Did Jesus die for Muslims? And what we attempted to do tonight was to highlight a few of the viewpoints of Islam in as respectful a way as we can. And look, there's lots of things that are, are good about the, th- the kinds of things that Islam teaches to, to its followers. Uh, if you know Muslims uh, th- that are, are peaceful, these guys, these guys are just wonderful people. They, they, they will give you the shirt off their back. They are kind, they are generous, they have integrity, and they're good human beings. That is, that's a blessing, that's a blessing. What we look at is we say, okay, from a theological standpoint, from a doctrinal standpoint, from a belief in God standpoint, we have incredible differences. But what we're saying here tonight is that even though we have those incredible differences, Jesus still died for them, just like for, just like for the atheist, just like for the doubter, just like for the, for the Buddhist or, or whomever. And that's the beauty of the plan of God here. So 
There, there's one more title that we want to uh, touch on, Jonathan. We just briefly brushed over a few. We want to spend a few minutes on this particular title. Let's go to Hebrews 12, 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The general assembly and the church of the firstborn. Now, that's pretty interesting. Now, obviously, the church of the firstborn has got to have some significance. And when you think of the firstborn, one of the things you think of is the exodus. Way back in Jewish history, when the, the nation of Israel is captive in Egypt, and the night that they are about to be freed. What happened that night? Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So now, just we didn't quote the specific scripture here, but Jonathan, who was liable to die in those households if that blood wasn't there? Only the firstborn of that household. So the deliverance of the entire nation of Israel came through the deliverance of the firstborn of Israel. That's correct. Because what happened is after that night, Pharaoh said, get out of here. There's too much death and destruction, which he brought upon himself by, by, by backing away from what Moses was saying. But, but the point is that it was the firstborn's deliverance that brought the deliverance to the everybody else. And I think that's an important aspect here, and that's why true Christians are called the church of the firstborn. And, and I just want to read uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and then we're going to develop this a little bit further. Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. So now you have in 1 Corinthians the clear-cut thought that Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. So you get the sense that, okay, we're, we're, we're called in Hebrews the church of the firstborn. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. There's a connection. Oh, yes. There's an incredible picture in the deliverance of Israel as a nation being delivered by the firstborn going first. And remember in the last segment, Jonathan, we read uh, there were a couple of scriptures, you know, um, Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the, in, in the previous segment, it was, um, uh, what was it? The mediator of one uh, gave himself a ransom for, uh, that wasn't the one. Um, there was another scripture. Actually, it's coming up later. Um, um, yeah. The, the idea was that there are two different classes. You kept saying that, two different kinds, two, two different, two different uh, uh, situations where grace, the grace of God is applied. Firstborn first, and then the nation, which represents the world of mankind, after. That's a well, Rick. Rick, after this First Corinthians scripture, um, are, am I coming through fuzzy? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'm hearing myself echo here. No, you're okay. Uh, go ahead. I was just going to mention it's like a mathematical equation: sacrifice plus blood equals deliverance. All right. Okay. So for who? Who's the deliverance for? The firstborn. 
Firstborn first, and then who gets deliverance because they're delivered? The whole nation second. Which is the world. So that's the way God's plan works. So Muslims are included in that. Atheists are included in that. Everybody's included. Why? Because Jesus earned the right to buy back the sinful uh, race of humanity because he gave that perfect life for Adam's perfect life, a ransom for all to be testified in its proper place. He paid the full price. And that's why it required a life. Because remember, humankind was put on this earth to be able to live eternally. The opportunity went away with the sin of Adam. It comes back through the sacrifice of Jesus. And Rick, the path is different for the Christian, and it's different for mankind. But both paths lead to freedom. Yes. On a different level, for the Christian, it's freedom in heaven. That's right. For the rest of the world, it's freedom on earth. Blood was needed in both of those situations. Let's go back to Romans, and let's see if we can finish up that Romans 5, uh, five uh, the, the, the fifth chapter of Romans. Let's go to Romans 5, 18 to 21 now. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. There you have it. The simple summation of all of this conversation is one transgression transgression right transgression means condemnation for everybody one act of righteousness by the right person at the right time and it had to be Jesus the perfect man results in justification to life for everyone whatever what was lost because of Adam is bought back because of Christ and nobody is lost in between. There are nobody, nobody falls through the cracks. You know, in our, in our system where, where, we're, where we try to deal with people going through all kinds of trials and tribulations and, and mental and emotional issues, you know, we have a system in place to, to try to hold things up. One of the things, you know, I've, I've had experience dealing with that system. One of the things I've noticed is there's some huge cracks in the system. And it's really easy in certain circumstances for people to fall through the cracks. And there's no way that the system can hold those people up because of their particular circumstances. And they fall through the cracks and they end up not getting the help that they could use or whatever it is. There are no cracks in the plan of God. There are no cracks. There are no faults in the system. Everybody dies because of Adam. Everybody can live because of Jesus. Period. There's no well, what about this guy or what about that guy? No, that's the way it works. And, you know, for Christians, our trial time is now. For the world, their trial time is later. There are, go ahead, I'm sorry. But everyone will have to be accountable during that trial time. Right. So it's not a free pass to say, hoo-hoo, anything I want, I can do. No, 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 no. Not, you have no idea the amount of work you are in for, if that's your attitude. You have no idea the difficulties you are creating for yourself in the future. I would say latch on to integrity right here, right now, and start to live a good life so you can have a better time later because it will catch up with you. No question about it. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Again, it's about all of humanity. 
They're here referred to as the many. In the last verse, they were referred to as all. All humankind both ways, the point is... Uh, it just makes the point clearer. He's using different ways to, he's saying the same thing again and again. How can you miss this? It is so clear what the apostle's saying. Let's continue. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Okay, so the law comes and because that shows you transgression, it, it, it multiplies because it identifies it. And that's why the sacrifice of Jesus becomes so much more powerful because it you're you're redeeming what's understandable instead of just something that's that's beyond everybody. It's, it's such a, such a powerful thing. And let's continue. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, sin reigned in death. Think about that. Sin reigned. If, you know, if you're in a kingdom and, you, and, the, and the ruler reigns over you and the ruler is sin, that's not a good kingdom to be in. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sin reigned in death. So grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus. That's showing us a picture looking forward of what's going to happen what can happen, what the possibilities are because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Because Jesus was willing to die. And everybody, you look at that and say, oh, God's cruel. Now when you see it in the light of eternity, you say, okay, God is just. The human creation is too high a creation to just be haphazardly dealt with. God is exacting with the human creation because he created it in his image, we needed to be bought with blood. And the reward is incredible. He is a loving father. And that shows it because, you know, you say, well, it's a terrible thing. Yes, it is. It's a terrible thing that a soldier has to die on the battlefield protecting someone's freedoms. It's a terrible thing, but it's a beautiful thing because a man gave his life for the life of others. Same thing, but this is now for eternity. It's such a great, great uh, way to look at the, at the plan of God. First Timothy 2, verses 3 to 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. Okay. Um, you know, I, I want to I touch on this scripture with a chat comment that just came in with a question. It says, how is what you are saying different than universalism? And that's a good question. I'm glad that came in right now. We're almost out of time. Uh, and this scripture, it says, here's how it's different. All right? Here's the difference. Universalism says, doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you are. God loves you. God saves you. You're good. What we're saying is, doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you are. Jesus died for you. Now you must be accountable. That's the difference. Universalism says everybody's good. What the scriptures say is you must be accountable. And this scripture you just read, Jonathan, it says that who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, when you think about that, that's backwards from what we normally understand. Read the next scripture, Romans ten thirteen. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, that's the normal Christian approach. You call upon the name of the Lord and then you can receive his grace. And that's the way it is right here, right now. But what this 1 Timothy 2 scripture is saying is he will have all men to be saved and then come to a knowledge of the truth. So it's saving without them asking and then 
having them come to a knowledge of truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, Rick, it means recognition by implication, full discernment. So There will be no question left. So when it says to be saved, in other words, to have the sacrifice of Jesus applied to every human being who ever lived, what do you do with that? Now they, they, okay, you say, okay, now they can be resurrected from the dead. Great, now what? Now they have to learn. Now they have to grow up. Now they have to decide to follow after righteousness. And who's going to help them, Rick? See, that's what the church of the firstborn, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the chosen generation, that's going to be their job. They were given something called the ministry of reconciliation. So all their experiences today, here and now, following in Jesus' footsteps will help them teach others how to also follow in Jesus' footsteps. Right, right. Now, the difference, the difference, the big difference is the true footstep followers of Christ must give up their will and do the will of God. In the future, in the messianic reign of Jesus, the world will not be asked to walk in steps of sacrifice, but they will be instructed to walk in steps of obedience. And Satan won't be there to interfere as he is now. Right, right. So they are given a day of judgment, and that day of judgment is a day of opportunity. And that day of opportunity is a day to learn how to plant their feet, to make mistakes and to do it again, and to bring their hearts in line with the righteousness of God. That's the key. Now look, here's the, here, here's, here's the sobering part. We said that everybody gets a chance. We didn't say that everybody gets to live eternally. Because there may be some who at that point, after being given a full and fair opportunity, because it says, and come to a knowledge, and you said that meant a full discernment. Yes. There may be some who at that time come to this full discernment of God's truth and say, I don't want it. And they will be taken away. They, taken, they will die. Okay? The second death where there is no resurrection. Right. And it's not torture or torment. God no. puts them to sleep forever because they chose to not live in God's image the way Adam was created. That's the reason Jesus died, was to get the world of mankind back to what Adam lost. That's what this whole thing is about. So when we say, did Jesus die for Muslims? The answer is, oh, yes. Did he die for Buddhists? Oh, yes. Did he die for, for children who never had a chance? Yes. Did he die for the Palestinians? Yes. Did he die for the Jews? Yes. Did he die for, 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 for people who have no belief, who just wander through life, for people with mental illness, for people who commit suicide? Yes, 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 and yes. Because now is not the day of judgment for all of those people. Later is their time to be accountable in an environment, like you said, where Satan's not going to mess things up. They're going to be given an opportunity with a clear mind to walk in the footsteps of, of, of righteousness and follow after those who have already followed uh, God through Christ. And Jonathan, we didn't finish the outline, we got, but you know what? We're out of time. This has been a really, really powerful conversation tonight in terms of trying to put in, in, in focus and in perspective just how magnificent the plan of God is that is given to us in the 
scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, through the prophecies, through the lives of the individuals, through the teachings of the apostles, and most importantly, through Jesus Christ himself who gave himself a ransom for all. And we have those prophecies that talk about the world, what it's gonna look like in the kingdom. No time for them now. I can just simply tell you this. The plan of God is bigger than you think. It's better than you think. It's more just than you can imagine. It is more loving than you can fathom. And it is coming to you. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, Jesus did die for Muslims and everyone else. Till next week, think about it.